part two, the free states. Quoting Keats's poem, Ode on a Grecian Urn. Thou still unravished bride of quietness. Thou foster child of silence and slow time. Sylvan historian, who canst thus express a flowery tale more sweetly than our rhyme? What leaf-fringed legend haunts about thy shape, of deities or mortals or of both? in temp or in the dales of Arcadie. What men or gods are these? What maidens loath? What mad pursuit? What struggles to escape? What pipes and tendrils? What wild ecstasy? Chapter 1 La Mara de las Leyanas Colinos You're looking better, Jack, Sam Oakenhurst has recovered from the machinoyate torments. Your old self. Jack Caraquazian deals seven hands of poker. Her skin reflects a million cultures given up to the pit long before their time. Its green eyes reveal a new kind of courtesy. Coolly amiable in his black silk and white linen. His raven hair hanging straight to his shoulders. His stoic back set firmly against the howling triumph of Satan. He is content. I'm feeling it, Sam, he says. Mr. Oakenhurst picks up his bags. All around him the outlines and shadows of the terminal cafe shift and caper, while Boudreaux Ramsadine practices a graceful figure with Fatima Panoche. A tiny dancer currently favoured by the Terminal's regulars who come to hear real old-fashioned Z and witness the purity of the high games. Only at Biloxi, where the fault yells and ululates, can enough colour be tapped to push new limits. And for those who lose too much, there is always the fault itself, restless and demanding, greedy for energy and offering perhaps an ultimate wisdom. On your way, Sam, Jack Caraquazian sits back from his game. His fellow players know him as Al-Karin. Many are shades, men and women ready to risk everything to win nothing but the company of their peers. They have the dedicated, ascetic appearance of a strict order. The Egyptian smiles, a kindly jackal. On my way, Mr. Oakenhurst sets his broad-brimmed pale Panama dusts at his fine cord travelling coat his buckskin riding boots, his blue cotton shirt and breeches. So long. Nobody knows what's going on up there now, says Boudreaux Ramsadine from the dance floor, his brutish face clouded with concern. They say it's nothing but vapour up in the freeze. Turned all to steam, mon ami. You'd be better off staying here. Mr. Oakenhurst lifts a hand to show appreciation. Estrella errante, Vupar. You know how it is. But Boudreaux Ramsadine will never know the how that is. He brought his cafe on the train from Meridian to take advantage of the tourist trade. Now he and the terminal are married to the fault until the end of time. We are all echoes of some lost original, she would tell him. But we are not diminished by this knowledge, rather we are strengthened by it. Chapter 2. So eres rapido dispara. 
when Mr. Sam Oakenhurst took off for the Free States, he had it in mind to heal the memories and still the cravings of his last six seasons at the mercy of New Orleans' infamous, infamous Machinoire, whose final act of trust was to introduce him to the long, complex mutilation rituals they believed to be the guarantee of continuing existence in the afterlife. Ending his stopover at the terminal cafe where Jack Karakwazian still wagered the highest psychic stakes from what had become known as the Dead King's Chair, framed by the whirling patterns of chaos ceaselessly forming and reforming, Mr Oakenhurst was at last able to ask his old friend how things went for him. Well, not so bad now, Sam. Pretty good. You're looking better, Jack. Your old self. I'm feeling it, Sam. The Egyptian's fingers moved abstractly around the dormant dimensions of a waiting flat game. The other players were unhappy with this interruption, but unwilling to risk Mr. Karakwazian's displeasure. He toyed with the dealing plates, himself anxious to begin the next hand, and his eyes looked upon so many simultaneous memories. Before he walked to the door, Sam Oakenhurst said, Come up there with me, Jack. I've got some famous spots in Texas and New Mexico. They're finding colour every day in California. Don't you want to visit San Diego while she's still burning? They say you can walk in and out of those flames and feel no heat at all. There's people living in the city, Jack, completely unhurt. That's something to see, Jack. Mr Karakwazian wished his friend luck in the West, but reckoned he had a game or two left to play at the terminal. In answer to Sam Oakenhurst's glare of honest surprise, he recalled the old intimacy of their friendship and said in words only Mr Oakenhurst heard, I can't go yet. He was not ready to speak of his reasons, but if his friend were to ride by again at a later time, he promised he would tell what happened after they had parted in the quarter when the Egyptian had gone upriver on the Memphis boat. Mr Oakenhurst tipped his hat to his friend and went to collect his horse from Boudreaux's makeshift stables. Have you heard of the conspiracy of the just? she would ask. Once the likes of us become aware of this conspiracy, we are part of it. There's no choice in the matter. We are, after all, what we are. And you and I, Sam, are of the just. You don't have to like it. In common with most who chanced their luck at the gambling trade, Sam Oakenhurst had left his will with the terminal's Neanderthal proprietor. He took the one good horse he had ridden in on, the sound of Boudreaux's Z-band still marking the rhythm of his actions. He was almost in the ruins of Picayune before the tunes had left his head. On his way up he had seen two corpses, a man's and a woman's half buried in the shallow of the beach. Behind them was the distant wail of the Biloxi fault, howling and groaning and never still. Picayune was the closest Mr Oakenhurst would let himself get to New Orleans. He had no fear of Machinois enmity. They regarded him as one of their own. But he had found a dark new greed in himself which tempted him back to their stronghold. Mr. Oakenhurst did not feel in any way free of the hunger until he entered the twilight fern forests beyond Nouveau-Iberie. His horse followed a broad, dry road, well marked and patrolled by the local security committee to guarantee the safety of all who lived there or passed through peacefully, and swift death to any aggressor. 
Sam Oakenhurst's plan was to take the road right up past Sulphur. He stopped for the night at a lodging house just above Lake Charles, where he was met by the landlord, a veteran of the First Psychic War, his skin scaled with pale, unstable colour. Lieutenant Twist said that the road now ran up to De Quincey, beside the Texas waters, a recent series of connected locks populated by islands stretching almost as far as Houston and nearly up to Dallas. There were a few paddle-wheelers carrying passages through the lakes, but they were infrequent and unscheduled. Mr Oakenhurst was advised to return to New Orleans and buy a ticket on a coastal schooner to Corpus Christi. There's a weekly one. Calmest and safest waters in the world now. They say all the ocean around the faults like that. Mr Oakenhurst said he had decided to take his chances. And in that case, said Lieutenant Twist, you would be better trying for De Quincey and hope a boat or a colour rider come in soon. He shook his head in admiration of what he understood to be Mr Oakenhurst's bravery. Somebody help me out of Louisiana. Help me to get to Houston town. Whistling, he led Sam Oakenhurst to the choice individual accommodation behind the old main building. Making himself presentable, Mr Oakenhurst went, after half an hour, to join an acoustic game in a corner of the hotel's bar. But after a few minutes he grew bored and deliberately let the other players win back most of their stakes, keeping five peerless noirs for as payment for his time. On his way to his cabin he saw a movement high up where the fronds were thinnest and the moonlight had turned to pale jade. Some sort of owl. Its eyes were huge and full of hope. Sam Oakenhurst's chamber was clean and well kept, though the furniture was old and the bedding darned. A useless V cabinet stood in the corner. Converted to hold magazines it dispensed them in return for a few pennies. The magazines were hand-coloured, crudely stenciled versions of old-time V programs. Mr Oakenhurst put in the coins and the screen opened to offer him a selection. They were chiefly magazines detailing the escapades of various unfamiliar heroes and heroines. The merchant venturer Pearl Peru. Captain Billy Bob Begg's famous chaos engineers. Carl Capital. Professor Pop. Fearless Frank Force, Bully Bop, Corporal Pork, violently coloured attempts to reproduce the interactive video melodramas some addicts still enjoyed at the Terminal Cafe. All the characters seem engaged in perpetual war between plurality and singularity for the domination of a territory, possibly philosophical, called the Second Ether. These unlikely events were represented as fact. The gambler, finding their enigmatic vocabularies and queer storylines too cryptic, replaced them in the dispenser, blew out his lamp and slept dreaming a familiar dream. He had talked to Jack Caraquazian when they were still in New Orleans. He had asked his friend if he would care if he spoke of something that was on his mind. Not at all, the Egyptian had said. I had this dream, said Sam Oakenhurst. I was standing on this cliff with a pack of dogs and killer blankies at my back, nothing but rocks and ocean far below, and nowhere to go but down when 
Suddenly out of the blue, this golden limo pulls up in the air right where I'm standing on the edge. And the driver's eyeballing me. She's a beautiful woman, real elegant, and she says, Hop in, Sam. Where do you want to go? Well, where are you going, I ask. Any place you like, she says. Well, I say, I guess in that case I'll stick here and take my chances. Please yourself, she says. She's ready to start up when I say, Hey, what's your name, lady? Luck, she says. Puts the car in gear and vanishes. I turn around and the dogs and the men are gone. What do you make of that, Jack? Well, said Jack Karakwazian after some considerable thought. I guess it means a luck is luck, that's all. Mm, I guess so, said Mr. Oakenhurst. Well, good night, Jack. Next morning they played a game of Jolly Jean before breakfast and talked about going up to the freeze. He had the dream again, exactly as before, but this time he stepped into the limo. Jack Karakwazian kept a room above the main casino of the Terminal Cafe. You could feel the Z coming up through the floor. The room was filled with shadows and flames, ragged holes of verdigris and kidney. It's home, he had said. Chapter 3 Erasa una vez en la oeste I had a dream, says precious Mary, as she moves against Sam Oakenhurst's arm. I dreamed I was leaving, I was lying in this field of silver poppies, looking up at the moon. I stretched my arms and legs wide, and the moon goddess smiled. She had a wonderful, round, pale face like a Buddha. Is that a Buddhist, Sam? And she came down from the midnight blue and pursed her silver lips, and she sucked my pussy, Sam, like nobody but you. She grins and laughs and slaps at him in his flattered embarrassment. They had been here at Ambry's for close to a month. Precious Mary was on her way to join a closed order in Laredo. She collected mosquitoes, and her little clear envelopes were full of the different types, including the hybrids. Her pride was a great dragon mosquito, rainbow carapace over two inches long, able to drain a small rodent dry of blood in less than a minute. They thought it carried A, she said, but now they ain't so sure. She had cornrows beaded with tiny precious stones, emeralds, rubies, sapphires, diamonds, large green eyes, a refined Watutsi face. She wore a silk shift which swam on the blackness of her skin like milk over marble. Her head, she said, was worth a million guineas, but her body was priceless. She lived, like everybody in De Quincey, at Ambry's big gothic timber house just by the jetty, which jutted over the flat sheen of a lake revealed below the surrounding yellow and black mist. The lake was never entirely at rest. Shapes just under the surface were mysterious and alarming. Every once in a while a tiny spot of colour would float by. They find big ones out there and milk them, she said. There's nothing but rigs once you get past once you get 20 k's over the horizon. She pointed to the north. Do you believe in God, Sam? 
Mr. Oakenhurst admitted that he did. Do you believe in a just God, Sam? Well, I believe God deals you a fair hand. He became thoughtful. What you do with it after that is a question of luck and judgment, both. And luck is what other people are making of their hands. It's a complicated game, it seems to me, Mary, and only a few of us are willing to accept the kind of odds it offers. But what else can you do? This is reality, I think. I look at the game, I work out the odds, and then I decide if I want to play or not. I hope I'm doing no more and less with my mind and time than God expects of me. You're crazy, she said. That was the last Sam Oakenhurst and Precious Mary ever spoke of religion. In Milton, he had lost his horse to a tall pile broker from Natchez, who had proved to be so much better than the table's other partners that Mr. Oakenhurst suspected him of being a secret professional. But he had played a fair game. The broker let Sam take his place on the coach to De Quincey. That trip to the lakeshore had been Mr. Oakenhurst's first real experience of the practical realities of the free states, where whites were supposed to be his equals. He found it Awkward to be travelling in a horse-drawn coach with a black man driving and a white man riding inside. On the seat across from him, the Blanco showed no particular embarrassment and chatted amiably on the tandem subjects of fluke attractors and the availability of pilas noires. Mr Oakenhurst did his best to converse without seeming to condescend, but he was still suffering from a strong desire to stare and wonder at this educated and self-confident whitey much as one would regard a clever circus animal. His name was Pee Wee Wilson, and he had owned property up in Holt country, he said, until it had popped one morning all of a piece and left him with a weird damned old coloured like dirty botley glass and radiating coldness so damned bad I felt myself chilled to my soul. He had moved his wife and kids to his sister in San Diego and was on his way to join them. He had never been in Biloxi, I have not yet chosen that pilgrimage sir, as yet, but was eager to hear Mr. Oakenhurst's account of it, and the Ugador loved to tell a tale. So the time had passed pleasantly enough between Milton and De Quincey. Pee-wee informed Mr. Oakenhurst, informed Mr. Oakenhurst about the famous Colossus of Tarzana, one of the wonders of their new world a huge figure some 200 feet high and apparently consisting of living flame which gave off a soft heat filling most observers with a sense of calm and well-being. A tent town had grown up around the feet of the Colossus, populated by those who had become hooked on the phenomenon's influence. Let us have the body, the Machinois would demand. We need it for our science. The soul is dissipated. What use is it to you? But Sam Oakenhurst would refuse to give it up. He would take it all the way to the fault and pitch it in. The Machinois would not be offended. He was of their number. He could do no wrong, save betray another of their own. Mr Oakenhurst waded through the shallow mud of the lakeshore. There seemed no end to it. At present, the flat, troubled liquid reflected nothing, but every so often a shape threatened to break through the surface. The sky had become a solid, monochrome grey. Once in a while, a long thread of bright scarlet would rise from below the horizon and give the sky a lizard's lick. Mr Oakenhurst ran secret fingers over his most intimate scars. His longing for the terrible satisfactions of the past was like physical hunger, a madness. 
He prayed for a vessel to rescue him. Mr. Oakenhurst walked through the mud. Sometimes his legs would begin to tremble, threatening to give out completely, and he would panic, turning slowly to look back at Ambrose and the long, dark jetty whose far point penetrated the mist. Darling, Precious Mary led him home on these occasions. Darling Sam. Sam Oakenhurst decided that if he stayed another week, he would take it as a sign and let New Orleans call him back. He shivered. He was suffering a profound greed. He had made no real decision at all. He glared at the grey water. The sky, he thought, had turned the colour of rotten honey. Chapter 4. La Muerte Tierro Un Precio Precious Mary was not impatient to leave. She had discovered an interest in the vegetable garden and, with another woman called Bill Pais, was planting in the assumption there would be some kind of new season. The garden lay behind the house where it was most sheltered. Mary complained about the lack of sunlight, the clouds of dust which swam forever out of the north. It seems like it's the same clouds keep coming around, she said. Like everything's on repeat. Well, I hope not, said Sam Oakenhurst, thinking of New Orleans and licking his salty lips. As a child, he had played his favourite records until the phonograph's machinery had started to show the strain. Gradually the voices grew sluggish and the music became a mixture of whines and groans until finally the records brought only depression, a sense of loss, a distorted memory of harmony and resolution. He sometimes thought the whole world was running down in a series of ever-widening, steadily dissipating circles. I cannot believe that one thing cancels out another, he admitted to precious Mary. It's like a roof, she looked at the sky. Like a cave. We could be underground, Sam, lying on the innards of the world. Across the surface of measureless grey, past the end of their jetty, a couple of spots of colour floated. The spots moved as with purpose, but both Mr Oakenhurst and Precious Mary knew they drifted more or less at random around the perimeter of the lake, carrying with them an assortment of organic flotsam. Bones, feathers, twigs... Tiny corpses made a lattice through which gleamed the dull gold and silver of the colour, blank round eyes staring out from a void. The colour seemed like a magnet to certain vegetable and animal matter, other material it repulsed violently, not always predictably. We are the whole within the whole, Sam. Your ancestors knew that, and we are unique. I reckon Jack Caraquazian struck colour up on the trace, mused Sam Oakenhurst. Something happened that didn't suit him. Well, what the hell is that, Mary? He pointed out over the lake. Through the twilight a slow, bulky shape was emerging. At first the Ugador thought it might be the tapering head of a large whale. Then as it came nearer he realised it was not a living creature at all, but a ramshackle vessel shadowing the shore. A great broad raft, about ninety by ninety, on which was built a floating shanty town. A melange of dull-coloured shacks, tents, barrels and lean-tos. 
In the middle of this makeshift fortress stood a substantial wood keep with a flat roof where other tents and packing case houses had been erected so that the whole had the appearance of an untidy ziggurat made of animal hides, old tapestries, painted canvases, upholstery and miscellaneous pieces of broken furniture. Observing what distinguished this floating junk pile, Precious Mary said, Why ain't that queer, Sam? No metal, not much plastic. And here's why. Sam showed her the dull gleam of colour. The dull gleam of colour spilling up from under the raft's edges. She's moving on a big spot. She's built to cover it. You saw it. That kind of colour won't take anything much. It's non-organic. It's kind of like anti-electricity. They haven't figured out any real way of conducting the stuff. It can't be refined or mined. It moves all the time, so it's never claimed. <laughs> I guess those types have found the only use there is for it. Ahoy! Chapter 5 Muchas gracias, mon amor. The idea of being trapped on a raft which would put the Texas waters between him and New Orleans was immensely attractive to Mr. Oakenhurst just then. There was no way of stopping the spot, only of slowing it down with metal lures floated out from the shore on lines. As soon as the goods had been thrown aboard, he jumped from the jetty to the slow-moving deck, shook hands with Captain Roy Ornate, master of the whole hog, and thanked him for the opportunity to take passage with him. He did not bother to announce his trade. He had been allowed to carry no arms above the whole hog, no razor, no metal of any kind except alumite. alumite. And so glad was he to be on his way, he had accepted the terms, leaving his gold, his pillars noirs, his slender Nissan 404, and all the other metal goods with precious Mary. She had loaded the raft with so much collateral in the form of fresh provisions that she had put him in excellent credit with Captain Ornate. The bandy-legged, pig-faced, upriver rafter had lost his original trade to the Colorado Gap. Took the river and half the state with it. You can still see the spray 50 k's away. He was a cheerful man who apologised for his rules. His methods were the only practical ones for the service he offered, which was, he admitted, not much. Still... Chances are this spot will carry us round to Waco, and then you're halfway to Phoenix, or wherever it is you're heading, mister. You won't be old when you get there, but I can't guarantee how long it will take. You won't be bored either, mister. There's a couple of Ugadors in the main saloon glad to make room for another. This is an easy vessel, Mr. Oakenhurst, and I hope you'll find her comfortable. She's rough and ready, I'll grant, but we have no power weapons aboard and hardly any violence, for I don't tolerate trouble. And those who make it I punish harshly. We have, as a last resort, a dueling field. A man of my own principles, Captain, said Sam Oakenhurst, conscious of the loss of his fancy links. His shirt was heavier on the wrists, the cuffs now decorated with antique Mickey and Minnie Mouse figures his daughter had given him for his 25th birthday almost exactly 44 seasons ago, and which he had never expected to wear in public. Now that the need had arisen, he welcomed it. Wearing the links felt like some sort of confirmation. Surya and Ona had died together in the Hattiesburg Roar, trying to escape an army of half-wild blankies released by a shiver from the nearby pens. Unable to resist the chance, he had been in Memphis, running a powered game for Van Beek and his fellow barons who were rich enough to command all the necessary colour. 
Mr. Oakenhurst had never known the detailed circumstances of his wife's and daughter's deaths, and time had put that particular pain behind him. He sensed some link between his grief and his self-destructive taste for machinois torments. He had never, after all, thought to blame himself for the deaths. They had wanted to remain in Hattiesburg, where everyone agreed it felt pretty stable. For a while, he had wished he could die too, that was all. Maybe he felt guilty for not following them. He let Roy Ornate's little kitterkin lead him up the rickety outside staircase to his room. The urge to live was very strong in Sam Oakenhurst, but not quite equalled by his hunger for pain, which he only barely governed these days. With relief, he watched the jetty and the Ambry house slip away behind, but the look he turned on the kitterkin, even as the skinny white kid glowingly accepted a whole guinea bill for his trouble, was one of vicious and unjust hatred. Sam Oakenhurst came out of his room and looked down at the smoking stoves and basket fires of a floating slum. Roy Ornate was waiting at the bottom of the stairs. Why do these people live in such squalor, Captain, when on land they have a better chance of dignity? Were they all power addicts? Captain Ornate cleared his throat. <clears throat> if you're trying to fathom the pilgrims, Mr. Oakenhurst, you'll have poor luck. If you're dining this evening, I'd welcome your company. He spoke with no great enthusiasm. Sam Oakenhurst guessed that Roy Ornate was not really his own man, and suspected there was another power aboard the whole hog greater than the master. <laughs>